All right, Christ Community Church, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick up in verse 36 this morning and finish out Luke's gospel in 24 verse 53 as we wrap up our Easter series this week. Now, while you turn there, remember we've been looking at our King, the Lord Jesus, and we've been seeing Him in both His humiliation and in His exaltation. And in Christ's humiliation, we've been recognizing and reflecting on the fact that Jesus descended all the way down in perfect obedience to the point of death on a cross. And He is the crucified King who endured the agony of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. And stepping into and taking on the condemnation that our sin deserves, He redeemed us and He brings us out of, of the shadow of death and into His glorious presence. And we began to see last Sunday on Easter the beauty and the glory of Christ's exaltation, that He is the risen Lord, that after the cross came the resurrection. And then this morning we'll see the crown in particular, that Jesus is not only the crucified King, but also in His exaltation, He is the ascended King. He is the enthroned King, the King who goes up to heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand, even now ruling over all things. And so the key truth that we want to see this morning with this last sermon in this series is that because Jesus is the ascended King, He empowers us with the Holy Spirit so that we get to become His joyful and hopeful witnesses until He returns. Let me read that one more time for us. Because Jesus is the ascended King, He empowers us with the Holy Spirit so that we get to become His joyful and hopeful witnesses until He returns. Now let's see that in His Word this morning as we turn to Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. This is God's Word for us this morning. As they were talking about these things, they being the disciples, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we begin and, and step into this last part of the Easter story in Luke's gospel, the question to help draw us into this text is twofold. And the question is this, are you more cynical or more hopeful about the future? And likewise, are you more angry or more joyful 
in the present. Now this question is important not just because it's, it's a good way to take the, th the temperature of your, your emotional health and your mental health, but this question ultimately matters in our lives as disciples of Jesus because it, it often indicates in large part how we are doing as Jesus' witnesses. One of the things we talk about often here at Christ Community is that we are always witnessing with every aspect of our lives. We witness what is most important or valuable or troubling or interesting in, in our lives and to ourselves by the things we buy, the things we talk about in chit-chat throughout the day, by the things we post and watch online, the, the logos on our t-shirts, the stickers on our cars and our laptops. We are always witnessing about what is important to us. And one of the things we want to take stock of is if as we reflect on these questions, we realize, man, you know, I'm quite cynical about the future. I, I have maybe ultimate hope in Jesus, but when I think about uh, this year or next month or next week or even tomorrow, I tend to be very cynical and I, I, I see through things more than I am hopeful for God to show up and do great things. Or maybe when you think about just your, your emotional state in the day-to-day -day life, day -day life, you realize, I'm, I tend to be angry. I tend to grumble. I tend to complain and I, I don't have much fruit of joy pouring out of my heart. You know, in asking that, we're not trying to beat ourselves up, but we do want to recognize that that may mean that the witness we are bearing is soured by cynicism and made bitter by anger rather than indicating that we believe that Jesus reigns as king right now. And so the question for us is we see in this part of the story that Jesus calls us, his people, his witnesses. The question for us is how do we become faithful witnesses? If we are always witnessing, then we can either be unfaithful in that and witness to lesser things, or, or we can become over time faithful in that calling and witness to Jesus. And the question is, well, how does that happen? And what we will see is that Jesus is the one who makes that happen by His Word, by His Spirit, all because He is the King who reigns from His throne in heaven even now. And so let's see that and unpack it starting with Luke 24 verses 36 through 49 and see how Jesus is the ascended King who empowers us with the Holy Spirit. Now as we look at that, as we start looking at verse 36, notice how it's while the disciples are still talking that Jesus appears in their midst. At this point, Cleopas and, and his companion have come back from the road to Emmaus where they had encountered Jesus and then he had hosted a meal and broken bread and it was at that moment that their eyes were open and they beheld him and then he disappeared. But as they reflected on the fact that their hearts burned within him as he talked to them about scripture, they excitedly run back or, or walk back however long it took to Jerusalem, probably about seven miles from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. And that night they go and they talk to the rest of the disciples and they're discussing what they had seen and it's then in that moment, that same evening, or late in the night at that point perhaps, Jesus appears to all of the disciples who are there. And He talks to them. And notice that the very first thing Jesus says to them is, Peace to you. And we should pause and, and, and reflect on how much just wonderful and amazing grace and mercy is packed into those three little words, this simple greeting that Jesus says to His disciples. Because if, if it were one of us, and the first thing we would say to a group of friends who had abandoned us in our darkest hour, we probably wouldn't say peace to you. We would maybe just look at them with a scowl on our face, or perhaps we'd make a witty one-liner to put them in their place and be very sarcastic to try to couch some of our frustration and sense of betrayal, but not so with Jesus. He knows how faithless 
his disciples and friends have been, and yet he loves and he likes them and he draws near to them and he speaks words of peace over them. This is beautiful. This is the reflection of Christ's heart for his wayward people like us. This is why it is so important for us to recognize what happens week in and week out in our Sunday morning worship when we confess our sins and then hear our assurance of pardon. Every week that assurance of pardon is God saying over us, peace to you. As Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God because of Christ's work on the cross and his work through the empty tomb. The words he speaks to the disciples, he speaks to us, peace to us in him because of what he has done. There's joy to be found here. But the interesting thing is that if you look at verse 37, the disciples, they don't experience much joy yet. They are actually shocked, they're startled, they're troubled by what they see, by, by seeing Jesus in front of them. And so Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that in their minds they're thinking, this must be a ghost or a spirit. He senses that there, there are doubts arising in their hearts. He can see into their hearts and he knows that they're reasoning away their experience. And they're thinking, but we saw him die. So whatever we're seeing, it must be a ghost, right? Like that, that seems to be the only logical explanation they can come up with. And rather than chastising them for such folly, Jesus draws near to them. And he calls out their doubt with his question, but then he draws near to them and he shows them his body and says, look, I have flesh and bones. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. And they would have seen the scars from his crucifixion, but they also would have been able to touch and feel it was real flesh, real bone. This was not an apparition. It was not a ghost. It was Jesus himself. Yes, he is in a glorified, resurrected body, but it is still the Jesus they knew. And then he also, as they're taking that in, he says, and do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats in their presence. If he were a ghost, you would have expected that as he put the fish into his mouth, it would have fallen to the floor and fallen through him. But, but in reality, he is real. He has a real teeth, real taste buds. He eats the fish before them to show them it is him back from the grave in his true and resurrected, glorified body. But what's interesting for us to recognize is that as the disciples are having this encounter with the risen Lord, this first-hand experience with Jesus is not enough to fully transform their hearts and break through their unbelief. If you look back at verse 41, you'll see that they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling when Jesus asked for the fish. And the word that Luke uses there for disbelief, it is the exact same word we saw him use in verse 11 of chapter 24 on Easter, when the disciples did not believe the women's report from the empty tomb. They thought it was an idle tale. We saw then that they didn't have an information problem. The women's report was true. They had all the facts. They had Jesus teaching that the angels reminded the women about and that the disciples had also heard. So they didn't have an information problem. And now we see here, they didn't even have an experience problem. <clears throat> they are getting to talk to Jesus himself. And although it brings them joy and they marvel, they still have a heart problem. They have hearts that are hardened in unbelief and in sin, and no experience and no information can by itself break through. <coughs> Excuse me. They are a living illustration of Jesus teaching in his parable earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable, the rich man, when he dies and he's enduring the agony of hell, he speaks to Abraham in paradise and asks Abraham, please send me back or, or send Lazarus back. Send somebody to go talk to my family to warn them 
of what lies before them. And yet Jesus has Abraham say to the rich man, if they didn't believe and, and hear and know from Moses and the prophets, then neither will they believe if someone returns from the dead, someone is resurrected. And we see the disciples prove that here. Jesus himself has returned from the grave, victorious over death. He's talking to them. And yet, despite all that joy, they still disbelieve, despite the information, despite the experiences. And so what we see then is that as Jesus goes on and he engages with them, he points back to his word in verse 44 and reminds them, I have been telling you this throughout my whole ministry, that everything in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled in me. And then, verse 45, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. The things that they had understood in place, misunderstood in places like Luke 9 and Luke 18, Jesus, by his divine power, opens their mind by the power of the Spirit so that now, at last, they can see clearly. He alone can break through their unbelief and bring them into the beauties of faith. And as Jesus opens their mind, in verse 45, he then summarizes for them. This is everything the Old Testament had been pointing to. It had been pointing to his death on the cross and his victory and his resurrection from the grave. And then notice what Jesus does. In that same sentence, he then says, and also the Old Testament prophesied that in Christ's name, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And what we see is that the Old Testament not only foretold the person and work of Christ, but it also foretold the mission that Jesus, with His work on the cross being finished, now entrusts to His disciples and to us, His disciples today. The mission was foretold in Scripture. It is that big of a deal and that much of a part of God's plan for redemption. It is important. It is not an afterthought, but it itself was foretold in Scripture. And Jesus then says to the disciples, You are witnesses of these things. They were both eyewitnesses because they got the privilege and the great gift of seeing Jesus face to face, but then they partook in the office that all of Jesus' disciples have, which is to be ambassadors of Christ, to be those whose lives point to and reflect the wonders of redemption in the person and work of Christ. And yet notice, Jesus tells them, but you're not going to do this based on your own knowledge, based on your own experience. They would go and be witnesses only in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the, the power source of becoming a faithful witness, not in learning a bunch of stuff, not in having um, really wonderful spiritual experiences, as good and helpful as those things can be. The way we become faithful as Christ witnesses is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's important for you and I to recognize, because at this point, the disciples are still 40 days out from Pentecost when Jesus would pour out the Spirit upon them. But for you and me, the Spirit dwells in our hearts if we are believers. In fact, we see from this story, if experience and information from Jesus Himself could not break their unbelief, but only Him using the Spirit to open their minds could do that, then what that teaches us is that faith in Christ is always miraculous. It is always a work of the Holy Spirit who is sent out by the Father and the Son. And so our own faith in Christ reminds us that Jesus lives and He reigns and He rules in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit who has opened our eyes to behold Christ and to see Him and now also empowers us as individuals and together as Christ's body to be His witnesses as we become disciples who make disciples. 
The trouble is that sometimes we are like the disciples, though, and we, we experience doubt. We wonder, is, is my faith really miraculous, or do I just believe because you know, I grew up in a Christian home and everybody around me believes, and we can sometimes find ourselves doubting the reality of Christ and His work in our lives. And so as we reflect on this, we should ask ourselves, which way do you run when you experience doubt? And similar to that, which way do you run when somebody else experiences doubt? We see from this part of the story, we know exactly which way Jesus runs when we experience doubt. He runs towards us. And it is very important for us to remember, as we say often in our church, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is pride. And what we want to be aware of, whenever we experience doubt and we're wondering, is all of this true? And, and you know, what, what difference does it make in my life? And I'm struggling to believe. When we're there, we need to be careful that we don't become proud with our doubts. You know, there are really two main ways you can become proud with doubt. On the one hand, it is very easy in today's world to become proud with your doubt by, by telling the whole world, you know, I'm brave enough to doubt and to question everything. You can get a platform doing that very easily. And people will celebrate you and applaud you for, for questioning the things you were taught from the Word of God, but never arriving. And that just becomes all about you. And it's not at all about the Lord. But I think for, for a lot of us, and in our circles, what we're more likely to do with our doubt and pride is to hide it. You see, pride often hides doubt because we're afraid of what people will think about us if they knew that we still struggle to believe these things. And we can even valorize this and, and ennoble that situation and say, well, I've been a Christian for so long, or, or I'm a leader in the church, or I'm a parent, and, or, or I, I serve in this campus ministry, and if people knew that I doubted, I don't want to rattle their faith. But recognize that's a proud thought because that's making yourself the center of somebody else's capacity to believe. But what we've seen from this story is that the Spirit is the one who helps us believe, not us. And so we want to be humble when we experience doubt. We want to be faithful when we experience doubt. Faith doesn't hide doubt like pride does. Faith takes doubt and brings it to Jesus, the same Jesus who runs towards us when we doubt. And so He invites us to see how He, by His Spirit and through His Word, can unravel our doubts. He doesn't look at us and say, look, you know, you've got to go read some more books, go listen to some podcasts, maybe go audit a few classes at seminary or get a degree, figure it all out, then come talk to me because I've already done all the work. It's all there. You just need to figure it out. That's not what Jesus does. Think about the fact that Jesus was willing to do something as simple and ordinary as hold out his hands and eat some fish to unravel his disciples' doubt. And he does the same for us today through his word and by his spirit as we draw near to him with our doubt. And our prayer is that he would change us, that as he helps us work through our doubt, he would make us the kind of people who draw near to others when they doubt. So often, as Christians, we are not known for our, our non-anxious presence among those who have big questions and doubts. We tend to have the reputation of pushing away people who doubt and question because we're insecure in our own faith and their doubts rattle us because we forget about how secure we are in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what we want to do is we want to become the kind of people who are, are ministered to by Jesus so that we can then be a blessing to those who wrestle. This is so important as we minister to the next generation. One of the common reasons as you look at studies of one you know, rising generation to the next over the past several decades, one of the main reasons young people will give for walking away from the faith is that they were made to feel embarrassed or shamed for having questions and doubts, or they were just never even given the opportunity to talk about that stuff openly. 
And so we want to be the kind of people who draw near to those who doubt because of our great confidence in Jesus, His Word, and His Spirit at work in and through us so that He can comfort those who wrestle with doubt. And Norval Gelden Hughes, a commentator on the Gospel of Luke, he puts all of this together and reminds us of Christ's presence and His power and His willingness to work and meet us in these doubts. And he says this, Only the living Christ Himself was able to conquer the fear, perplexity, and doubt of His disciples and to prepare them to enter the world as preachers of the glad tidings. And in like manner today, it is only the risen Savior Himself who can banish all of our, our fears from our hearts and give us the inward rest and peace to enable us to live and act as living witnesses of our living Redeemer. And all the spiritual equipment that we need, He gives us through the Holy Spirit, already given to His church in His fullness on that first Pentecost, and given to every believer in the moment of regeneration. Gelding Hughes' point is that Jesus is the only one who breaks through our unbelief and fills us with faith by the Spirit, and He does so generously. He pours out the Holy Spirit on us, and if you're a Christian, the Spirit dwells in you, and therefore you have the spiritual equipment you need to be a faithful witness. And that is good news. And as we see now, turning back to the text into Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, we see that that good news about our ascended King also gives us hope and joy. Being a witness is not a burden. It is a joyful gift and a, and a hopeful calling. Now Luke ends his gospel with these brief four verses talking about the ascension of Christ. And the ascension, when we think about the Easter story, you know, what we tend to think about is the cross. And oftentimes we kind of put the cross in bold, 0.72 font, and then we've got the resurrection in slightly smaller, italicized font. And then the ascension in our minds, sometimes it's more like a footnote or even an endnote. You know, we know it's there, we kind of tack it on because it's part of the story. But when it comes to thinking about, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean for our, our lives in an ordinary day? We, we tend to come up short and say, oh, I'm, I'm not really sure. And the ascension for Luke, though, it is so important that he closes his gospel with it and he opens the books, book of Acts with a longer account of the ascension. In fact, some scholars think that his account of the ascension is much shorter here in his gospel because he may have been running out of room on his scroll as he was writing his gospel. But he wanted to make sure he got to the ascension. And in this account in Luke 24, he compresses the timeline. In Acts 1-3, we know that there are 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. Here in Luke 24, Luke doesn't um, take time to, to note the timeline, but we do know that this is 40 days later after Jesus' conversation with His disciples. And as we think about the ascension and the difference it makes in our lives, we want to be clear, what exactly do we mean when we talk about the ascension of Christ? What we're talking about is exactly what we see here in verse 51, that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the God-man in His true human nature and true divine nature, was taken up into heaven, and He was taken up embodied, incarnate still. It was not as though Jesus was taken up into heaven and His body fell back down to earth sort of like a shed snakeskin or something like that. The embodied Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, sits now at the Father's right hand in heaven. As one theologian famously put it, the dust of the earth is seated on the throne of the universe. And that is a marvelous thing to ponder. And I can't explain the physics of it to you. I can't explain the metaphysics of it to you. But we know from God's Word that Jesus in His incarnate state, in His glorified body, was taken up to heaven. And He now is seated at the Father's right hand in His throne. He is enthroned 
as king. That's what the ascension is about, the enthronement of Christ. And the reason the ascension matters for me and you so much is that first and foremost, the ascension reminds us that when we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about some sort of pious, religious collection of ideas. It is very easy when you love theology and you love studying God's Word, it is easy to get lost in your own mind and to think just about these things in terms of ideas. And ideas matter and they have consequences. We need to recognize the ideas we think about when we talk about our theology, when we talk about things like the ascension and the resurrection and the crucifixion, those aren't just ideas. They are true events regarding a living person who is alive this moment. The ascension teaches us and reminds us abundantly clearly that Jesus is a person and He lives now. And if Jesus is a person who is alive now, seated on His throne, that means He's active. Ideas aren't active. They don't seek you out. But we see that Jesus in this part of the story, notice how He is constantly blessing His disciples here. Ideas can inspire us if we constantly remember them, but persons can bless us even when we are downcast and we are distracted. And so it is good news that Jesus is a person reigning on His throne. And we see here that the last thing He did with His disciples is He blessed them. He spoke words reminding them that they were being drawn into God's presence by the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit would come and fill them. And it's while He's blessing them in that act that He's taken up into heaven. And what we see is that that transforms the disciples and it gives them hope and it gives them joy and they at last worship Jesus. They know who He is in fullness. He is the Son of God, the God-man, and they worship. And this reminds us then that Christ's ascension, the fact that He is seated on His throne, is the source of all of our hope and all of our joy. And that is good news because there are a lot of things we could tack our hope and joy to in life that cannot deliver and that can change. But if Jesus is our source of hope and joy, then that, that source of hope and joy is unchanging. We are firmly anchored to it. And nothing can pluck us from His hand. Nothing can topple Jesus from His throne. The fact that His throne is a heavenly throne means that there is nothing on earth, not even the spiritual satanic powers of darkness can topple Him from His throne. There's no spiritual wicked coup that can change the fact that Jesus is King and He rules. That's good news. It means that no matter how discouraged we get by things that happen on earth, we ought never doubt that Jesus is King. Or perhaps better put, when we do doubt, we ought to run to Him with that doubt so that we can remember that those doubts are not based on, on, on good reasons. Because He is King and nothing can change that. And yet, as His reign is transcendent and He's seated at at God's right hand and He can look out by the power of the Spirit and perp perfectly lead and guide the church, we need to remember that His heavenly enthronement doesn't mean He's inaccessible to us. But in fact, as the book of Hebrews makes clear time and time again, it's only because Jesus has gone into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand that we have access to God in Christ. And so while His reign is completely untouchable by His foes, His throne is entirely accessible to us, His people. And then we can draw near to His throne of grace and mercy and, and receive what we need in times of trouble and need. So we have every reason for joy because of the ascension. And it's so interesting that that joy so changed the disciples that notice where they go to worship and bless God. They go back to the temple. 
And on the one hand, that's a bookend in Luke's gospel. He begins with people like Zechariah and Simeon and Anna looking forward to the Messiah coming as they worship in the temple with great expectation. And now he closes with the disciples looking back and looking forward to what the Messiah will continue to do as he sends the Spirit, and they're celebrating what God has been doing in Christ in the temple. But it's so interesting because the temple was led by the very leaders who called for Jesus' execution. You have to wonder if the disciples, in going back to the temple, if some people may have seen them there with Jesus when Jesus had overturned the tables and had you know, done great debate and theological showdown battle with the leaders of the temple. And, you know, if, if people may have raised their eyebrows at them and thought, what are these guys doing back? They followed the, the guy we crucified. And yet the disciples will let nothing keep them from worshiping God. So great is their joy and their hope, and they're, they're binded together in unity because they know their king reigns and he lives. And that ought to be so for us as well, that we would be binded together as God's family in joy and in hope that nothing would keep us from drawing near and worshiping him together. We know from 1 Corinthians 3.16 that this side of Pentecost, we are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. We, the body of Christ, each of us are, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but together we make up the temple. We are the place where God promises to make His presence known. And so we should want to be united in joyful and hopeful worship. But so often when we find ourselves divided, it's because we lose sight of the fact that our King, Jesus Christ, reigns. And instead of recognizing how our joy and hope are anchored in His rule as King, we try to pin them or tack them or sticky tape our hope and joy to changing things in the shifting sands of this world. And then we get divided and we get twisted about and we turn on each other. And so the question for us to think as we close out this sermon and as we close out this series is in what ways do you try to pin your hope and your joy on something other than Christ? I'm sure all of us as Christians, we would say, yeah, my ultimate hope, my ultimate joy, it's on Jesus. Of course, Jesus is my ultimate hope and my hope for life beyond the grave and my hope for all things being made new. But is Jesus and his reign as king right now, is that your source of hope and joy day to day, hour by hour? Is that your hope and joy for this week, for this month, for this year? Or do you find yourself in, in you know, short-term things thinking, well, my hope is that things will be different at the next election. My joy is that I'll get done my to-do list at work and I'll get a promotion and I'll be recognized and affirmed. My hope and my joy are tied to my kids' success or to them you know, liking me and me just surviving another day as a parent. You know, All of those are, are, are things that matter and they're important, but they cannot bear the weight of our hope and our joy and they turn and they change and they twist and they shift because they're things of the earth. But as Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, as he reflects on the fact that Jesus is ascended to his throne, we're to set our minds on things above. That's where our hope and our joy is found. It, the, the old adage of don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, it has it backwards. It's only if we are heavenly minded in that our hearts are set on Christ to our ascended king, only then can we be of any earthly good because only then do we have the, the hope and the unity that can bind us together as God's people so we can together be of earthly good as Christ's witnesses. And so we've got to be honest about this question. We've got to be honest about the ways that we sometimes miss out on the hope and joy that we have access to because Christ reigns, and we look for it in lesser people and in lesser things. Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas, they put this well in their book about Jesus, Ichthus, Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior. 
And they say this as they reflect on Christ's ascension and his return. They say the return of Christ is the next great redemptive moment on the divine calendar. Whatever God may do between now and then does not form the horizon on which we are to fix our gaze. No, the ascension teaches us to keep our eyes fixed heavenwards, to be looking not so much to the signs of the times or even to the end of our own lives, but rather to the future of the Lord. For the next great event on God's calendar is the return of Jesus. We are called to focus on Him. And again, that is a call then to focus on the one reality, the one truth that can give us hope and joy, that binds us together as God's people. And that is the fact that Jesus reigns, that He lives and He sits on that throne and He sends out His Spirit and He watches over us as His people, as His church, and He leads us and He cares for us and He uses His Spirit to draw us out of our, our doubts and draw us out of our sin and to fill us with faith and fill us with, with, with repentance and hope. And so may we, as we finish this series, may we not move on from these things unchanged. May we not leave them behind as, yeah, those are the, the theological truths and ideas I think about at Easter time. But may we recognize from this part of the story what has been true the whole time, what's been true for 2,000 years. Christ sits on His throne. And that anchors our hope, anchors our joy. And that teaches us that we get to become Christ's joyful and hopeful witnesses who are empowered by His Holy Spirit from now and until He returns. So with that hope in mind, let us turn and pray as we wrap up. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that though sometimes, Lord, we confess, we treat you like you're just an idea, an idea that we've got to make sure we have precisely worked out in our minds and in our theology, but we forget that you're a person, you're alive, you reign, you, you came out of the tomb and you, you, you mount at your throne and you sit there and you rule and you watch over us and you send out the Spirit and all of that, Lord, is abundant reason for us to have joy and hope. But Lord, so often we're full of anger, we're full of cynicism, because we are setting our hope and our joy, we're, we're taping it to things that change in the world. It's so easy to do that. But we recognize that you don't call us to, to, to you know, fix ourselves up in our own strength, but by the Spirit, you draw us to yourself and you remind us of what is true. And so help us, Lord, change us, fill us with the Spirit that we might know the hope and the joy that we have and that we get to look forward to as we look to your return. And in the meantime, may we not be divided by the distracting, changing events of this world, but may we focus on our calling as your witnesses and use us, Lord, to draw near to one another when we doubt, when we struggle, to draw near to others when they doubt, that you might work through us to build us up in faith and that we might get to see your family grow and celebrate and rejoice at your work in our midst. And we pray this in your name. Amen.